Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, my name's Stuart Corbridge. I'm the Provost and Deputy Director here at LSE, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the school for what really is a very special event. Uh, an inaugural lecture by Nobel Laureate Professor Sir Christopher Pissarides in his capacity as the first holder of the Regis Professorship of Economics at the London School of Economics and Political Science. And as the time, please, to turn off or to turn to silent your mobile phones, but you're very welcome to tweet through the event. The hashtag is LSE Regis, which has a nice tone to it, I think, if you'll forgive the pun. And I think we're being joined also on videocast for people that couldn't get in to hear Chris in the old theatre this evening. I'm going to give a fairly long introduction because this is a very important event, but let me start by telling you something about the Regis Professorship of Economics before saying something about our very distinguished speaker, Chris Pissarides. Regis, or royal professorships, are gifts of the monarch, the earliest of which, as at Oxford and Cambridge, I believe date back to the first half of the 16th century. Uh, currently, uh, the University of Glasgow has the most Regis professorships. I think it has 13. Uh, most of which was set up between 1760 and 1860, presumably at the time or thereafter of the Scottish Enlightenment. Uh, to mark the diamond jubilee of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, it was announced in 2012 that six new Regis professorships would be created, one to mark each decade of her reign, and the first such awards for a very long time. Now, universities around the UK were invited to make a case one of their departments or faculties, and LSE rushed to do this for our economics department. Uh, as is the way with these things, apparently applications were restricted to two sides of A4 and had to establish the academic distinction of the unit proposed, which wasn't difficult in the case of LSE economics. I'm just going to read you the second and third paragraphs of the case that we made. According to all major rankings, the LSE is the only premier economics department outside North America. No large academic unit in any subject performed better than LSE economics in the UK's research assessment exercise 2008. In addition to its long tradition of distinction in research, but also directly on the basis of it, the LSE department has brought expertise to the shaping of public policy, insight to public debates, and crucial support to private sector business. Members of the department are leaders in addressing issues from global markets to housing and schooling in Britain to the economics of households and cities. LSE economists also work with colleagues throughout the social sciences, social sciences to provide the kind of analysis and evidence that's needed to address core issues of well-being in the UK and beyond. And we carried on. The Department of Economics at the LSE has excellence in teaching as well as research with over 50 faculty serving 1,000 students. LSE students go on to careers of enormous distinction and accomplishment, leading in British government and industry and in international organisations. Significantly, the 2010 Nobel Prize for Economics was award awarded to Chris Pissarides for his work on the analysis of markets with search frictions. In addition, nine former members of staff or students of the department have been awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics. Sir John Hicks, Friedrich von Hayek, James Mead, Sir Arthur Lewis, Merton Miller, Ronald Coase, who died recently, as many of you will know, Matthias Sen, Robert Mundell, and George Akloff. 
Well, in the event, the, the Queen announced that 13 new Regis professorships would be established, not six as was the original intention, and one was duly def uh, conferred on the LSE Economics Department, as we think it would have been done had it been restricted to just six. <laughs> what went on with counting at the palace, it's not clear. Um, I was over at the new economics building yesterday and Chris showed me that the department intends to place a re replica of the royal warrant. Uh, the original one is signed by Her Majesty the Queen and she said she wasn't going to do it twice. If we lost it, it will be put in a very prominent archway on the first floor of the splendid new building that economics occupies at the southeastern edge of Lincoln's Inn Fields. And there will be an honour board there that will list the names of all those who will hold the Regis Professorship of Economics. The department, of course, also proposed to the school that the first Regis Professor of Economics at LSE should be Sir Christopher Pissaridis, who even within a very distinguished faculty stands out both as a very long-standing servant of the school and as an academic colleague who is widely recognised to be of extraordinary distinction. It was not ever fuss, at least in terms of recognition, I think I'm right in saying that when Chris first applied to study at LSE as a young man, he was rejected. <laughs> Twice, I believe. <laughs> Since the time, however, that Chris finally came to LSE as a PhD student in 1971, he's been a key member of the LSE family, much loved by generations of students and colleagues alike. There really was a feeling of tremendous joy, I remember, just over three years ago in October 2010 when it was announced that Chris had shared in the Nobel Prize for Economic Sciences that year, along with Peter Diamond at MIT and Dale Mortensen at Northwestern University. I think it was especially appropriate that Chris shared the prize with Dale Mortensen because their joint work on job creation and job destruction, building on previous work, of course, by both scholars, has led to the development of a model, the Mortensen-Pissarides model, that is exceptionally influential in present-day macroeconomics. I won't attempt to say any more about the details of Chris's work on search frictions in job markets or on matching theory more generally. This is partly, mainly, because Chris will most likely be referring to at least some of these concepts in his talk tonight. But it's also because on the last occasion that I shared the stage with Chris, I think it was in here, or the Sheikh Zayed Theatre, we did a very delightful question and answer session when um, at one point uh, Chris politely informed the audience that one of my questions to him was not of the highest order and betrayed the fact that I was not an economist, both of which absolutely true, and there's a good burst of laughter on the podcast to mark that moment. So I'll stay clear of that. Instead, I will say that Chris is a wonderful colleague. He's a great citizen and teacher at the school. Such is his modesty that colleagues and students alike might not know that in addition to the Nobel Prize, Chris is a fellow of the British Academy, as well as a fellow of the Econometric Society and of both the European and American Economic Associations, the latter as a foreign honorary member. In 2012, Chris was awarded a gold medal for his outstanding contribution to public discourse by Trinity College in Dublin. And this year, he was knighted by, well, I think it's going to be next year now, will be knighted by Her Majesty the Queen. In addition, in 2011, uh, Christopher received the Grand Cross of the Republic of Cyprus, which is the highest honour that can be bestowed by the country of his birth, 
where he also continues to serve as chairman of the Republic's Council of National Economy and as European Studies Professor at the University of Cyprus. There is much else that I could add on Chris's achievements and honours, uh, not least that he's often called upon by the press, has been today, to speak on the Eurozone crisis and the future of European integration. Given that time is pressing, however, let me just conclude this rather formal introduction by saying that it's a great honour for the school, and for me personally, Chris, to host your inaugural lecture as the first Regis Professor of Economics at LSE. The school is genuinely happy that you hold this prestigious professorship, and all of us tonight look forward to your talk on the topic, Is Europe Working? Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Stuart. I'm, I'm really honoured, but more moved to see so many good friends and uh, and and students upstairs and listening to your words. But I hope I hope I recover to give this uh, presentation because um, I, I wonder when um, Emma first asked me what I wanted to talk about. I I thought I hadn't decided because it was so many months ago. And then I thought, I think of a title which could either, I could either talk about unemployment, which as you say is the topic of my research for the last 40 years, or I could talk about the Eurozone, which is the thing that occupies most of my thoughts and, uh, and feelings, I should say, now as part of my job in Cyprus and also given what's going on now in the Eurozone, because it's not only two countries that I have, of course, like Britain and Cyprus, I, I also have Greece, which is the one that is uh, um, suffering most under with our present policies. And, and I finally decided to go down the Eurozone uh, route and, um, and say a few things about personal experiences and also where I, I see things uh, standing, which is uh, why the press picked it up and hadn't left me alone today all day. Now, of course, you recognize the, where the um, title came from. I need something to move the slides with. Do you have to pull it out? Uh, okay, I'll use the, uh, yeah. Um, of course, you will recognize the, uh, the title, those of you who have long enough memories, being the Saatchi title that this, uh, the, the word, it's a paraphrasing of what um, Saatchi used to um, help um, Mrs. Thatcher win the 1979 election. And, um, and I thought I'd go back and be original and, and paraphrase it and, and use it tonight. But then when I went to the internet to look for an image, for the image you are seeing, I realized that I wasn't the first one to have this idea. <laughs> the, the, the one I especially like is the one in the bottom line, the world isn't working. <laughs> Which, which reminds me of the school in Cyprus when our teacher of um, religious instruction gave us a test that said write down the names of as many saints as you remember with their days, that the days they are celebrated in the Greek Orthodox Church. And one boy wrote down all saints June 30th <laughs> and handed it in. <laughs> but of course he was the winner. <laughs> 
So um, today the, the topic will be very much uh, Europe. So the question is, did, did Europe ever work, meaning the European uh, Union? And, and I think so, actually. I think it was a great success. I mean, it's questionable whether it's um, European Union that brought lasting peace to Europe, but that was the original intention of um, Schumann, Robert Schumann, in the, in the 1950s. Uh, that uh, Germany and France especially should come together and cooperate on economic matters and little by little they should move on to political cooperation. But then the um, first uh, European Economic Community was formed in 1958 with the Treaty of Rome and um, it expanded and expanded and now it includes almost the whole of Europe outside uh, Russia, I guess. Trade expanded, poor countries caught up and um, and, and there are a lot of benefits in, uh, to continuing this cooperation. I mean, we still need to do some work, especially on the single market in services, because it's still not possible to locate and operate under the same rules throughout the European Union. I think it's important that it should be done, but they're working quietly behind the scenes there, and we're going to get there one day. <clears throat> now, the question is, is Europe still working in that way? Well, in, um, in the 1990s, when the uh, single European currency was being debated. I, I thought it was um, a, a good next step towards European integration. And in fact, one of the things that persuaded me, believe it or not, is uh, coming to this theater to listen to a um, discussion that uh, Valery Giscard d'Estaing and Helmut Schmidt had about the euro and why we should uh, continue with European integration down this way, and they set it up very nicely. They were both pro-European. They were prepared to make national sacrifices to make the European project work. And, um, and I fully supported it. In fact, I joined the Cyprus Monetary Policy Committee, um, worked on it for seven years to bring the euro to Cyprus. I joined the uh, Treasury uh, Commission here that um, prepared the famous six tests for um, entry into the Europe, and, and I did the same for Sweden, in fact. It's, um, it's a mere coincidence that the two countries I worked on decided not to join the Europe, <laughs> <laughs> except, except for, for Cyprus. But, um, but the way I see the situation now is that, is that it's really very unsatisfactory. In fact, I think it reached a point that um, Unless we make the necessary reforms to the uh, European system that we have now to make it more uh, growth friendly and, and more employment friendly, you know, to create more jobs, to employ especially the millions of young people who are unemployed, it's, we might as well give up. There's no point in continuing the way we are now. Uh, just dealing with one problem after another in an ad hoc, ad hoc way and at the end thinking that we've succeeded because we managed to keep it alive uh, for a few more months and um, not taking the important decisions that have to be taken. Now, there is a lot of debate going on. I mean, there are some very sensible things being heard and, and I'll talk more about that later. But. Um, decisions don't seem to be made. It, it, it's all opinions and, and discussions and negotiations. So that's going to be my theme. I'm going to show 
uh, why, uh, where we stand with decisions are being made, and then I'm going to say what I think uh, should be uh, done to make the Euro and Eurozone uh, work again. Um, now, I want to begin by showing you the present situation in the Eurozone, and you will see that that they're really the, the Eurozone is really the sick man of the global economy in terms of uh, performance. I mean, and I think this um, chart is probably the most telling. I mean, here you see a comparison of the um, of national output GDP in um, in all the um, developed countries of the world, in the OECD, in uh, 2013 compared with 2007. And the countries in red are the countries that belong to the Eurozone, um, plus where the all, all but one belong now. The other one decided to join uh, next month. And <laughs> congratulations to them. <laughs> That's Latvia. In fact, as you can see, Latvia is uh, is only second to Greece of having the worst record. <laughs> and they decided to join, so they satisfy the credentials, I guess. <laughs> and, and and as you can see, where you see the negative side, where countries that are worse off now than they were in 2007, is completely dominated by by the countries of the Eurozone. So it looks like the rest of the world has come out of recession. They've now overtaken their peak in 2007, but not the Eurozone, with the exception of um, Germany, Austria, Belgium, and, and then Lithuania, France are, are at about the same level, and Malta and Slovakia, we have no idea why they're so far to the right, but, but, but they are, I mean, they're smaller countries, obviously, it's more volatile. Now here, I picked up all the countries with negative um, difference, so the ones that are worse off now than uh, six years ago, and the average of the Eurozone, of course, is there, the EZ there, which is about minus two, and you can see that the, the, the worst performing ones are, are in the Eurozone. I mean, Greece is 22% below where it was in 2007. Uh, Latvia, 8, 10%, Italy at about the same level, Cyprus about 7% and still going. Um, and, um, and then we come to the blue ones, that's Denmark. Well, Denmark is shadowing the Euro, so it's as good as being in the Eurozone, which comes next. And then Hungary, Iceland, we know about the Iceland's problem. And the UK, which is behaving in the way that, uh, that would have made a German proud, <laughs> if, if they were in the Eurozone. Now, here you see unemployment. Uh, this is total unemployment. And again, I put in red the countries that are now under a memorandum of understanding, which effectively means that the countries that uh, have the Troika dictating what their economic policy should be. And you can see that they're the worst performing countries. I mean, Greece and Spain have unemployment rates more than 25%. And then come uh, Poland, uh, sorry, Portugal, uh, Cyprus, Ireland, uh, they're all there. Croatia is in their middle, and again, Croatia has only, just joined, has only just joined the European Union. So again, it, you can see it's, it's one of the, it's one of, they are one of us. <laughs> That's why they wanted to come in. High unemployment, why not they satisfy the criteria? Um, and, then, um, and then youth unemployment, which is even a worse story. Spain, Greece having youth unemployment rates of about 60%. 
And then come uh, Croatia again with uh, 50, Cyprus 40, Italy 40, Portugal very close to 40. And, and, and this is really the, the, the sad story because this is something that's been going on for um, six years now. And although the Eurozone economy looks like it's picking up, it's picking up by something like 0 0.1, 0 0.23, it, that kind of growth will do nothing for this unemployment here. And that's why you see many, you may have seen the quotations that said one of the reasons, if not the main reason that I support that something has to be done quickly about this is this lost generation of, of, of youths. You know, like Mrs. Merkel herself suggested that maybe they should migrate, but if they want to come to Germany, they have to learn German and, and get into their um, apprentice training programs. Well, the point is that you, you don't want to, you don't want immigration to be the corrective mechanism here because you are going to lose your best young people. You know, I mean, we don't want to see Greece and Spain be emptied of all the educated, the highly trained young people and go and work in the Germany or, or, or wherever else because these countries need what they can contribute to in the future. You know, you, you want to nurture them there, not outside their own countries. Um, so now I'm, I'm going to make a few remarks as to, uh, as to why Europe isn't working currently, at least the way I see it, and that brings in politics a little bit, and then describe um, the current attitudes, and you will see there why I feel rather um, pessimistic about the, um, uh, the possibility of bringing about what I would consider to be good policies. Well, the... Um, what, what we have now, I think, the situation we're in now, is that, um, the, is that national interests within the European countries are, are as diverse as they've ever been. I don't think we ever faced a situation where countries have such different interests, uh, even within the Eurozone, uh, from each other. And, and the problem we have in Europe is that we never wanted, we never pushed for, for political union. So what matters more to political leaders is what their own national, their own nations, their own voters think and believe rather than what European voters believe. And therefore they pursue national interests over European interests when there is a conflict between the two. I think that's the source of the problem in the European Union. That's why it's, I think it will be facing problems even in the future because of that simply because the power base of European politicians is their national vote, it's not the European vote. They care, obviously care much more about national elections because they're the ones that put them to power. European elections are just a sideshow. And I use this as an example, if you, you know, when German politicians campaign in Germany, if they stand up and say, well, we have to do this because it's good for Greece and Spain, they're not, they're going to lose the election. They're not going to win because of that. Um, now why, now, why have European voters turned against the Eurozone? You know, why is it that if you campaign in Germany for a policy that is pro-South, you will lose votes? And I think the basic reason here is that um, if you are going to make the Eurozone uh, succeed, you do need to have transfers from um, the richer countries to the poorer ones. And Germany, being the richest, is the one that has to pay most. And therefore, 
there's that feeling, you know, do we pay taxes to give money to uh, other countries? Do we want to do that? The answer is, um, is no. And yet, the decision to form the, the common uh, currency zone and the decision to go ahead with the European integration the way we're doing it now is an implicit commitment that there should be more infrastructure, more investment projects in the poorer countries and regions so that they can um, grow and converge with the more wealthy ones. And that um, investment process needs to be a decision that is taken by all Europeans together not individual countries. In fact, in fact, you you see that the whole idea about who pays and and who receives is still perceived, even even in Europe itself, is perceived as being country to country transfers rather than payments from the European Union. You know, for example, and, I mean, I can give you a very good recent example. Uh, when the Troika come to visit Cyprus, I, I usually see them and we discuss progress and and what's happening and. And in, in one very recent meeting, I said something that um, could have been perceived as being uh, critical of German policy. I don't know how they got this idea, but. <laughs> <laughs> and then one of them immediately turned up and said to me, how could you criticize them? They give you so much money. Which, which really surprised me, because it's not Germany that is giving us money in Cyprus, it's the European Union, it's the Troika. The Troika has the IMF, the European Commission, and the European Central Bank. It doesn't have Germany in it. Instead of telling me, you know, Europe is giving you this money because you need it to avoid bankruptcy or something, it's saying Germany is giving you the money. And that, and, and that was a European official. And I think that's the key, that we still don't think of Europe. I mean, they, even they who work there don't think of Europe as one unit. They think of it as a collection of countries that they give, that they pass money to each other. Um, now, what happened in, um, in other, I mean, what I said about the need to transfer money, I mean, we see it happening all the time. You know, for example, in America, we know that California is probably the wealthiest state and we think it can stand as, as a single country, but in fact, California was developed with his coast money that provided infrastructure, you know, all those canals that developed agriculture initially, all those the railways and all that, they were funded by the states that were already developed in the United States at the end of the 19th century, you know, by New York and Pennsylvania and, and, and New England. And there are still huge transfers taking place through the defense budget and federal taxation. We don't have that kind of thing in, in Europe. West Germany itself, transferred vast amounts of resources to East Germany after the fall of the Berlin Wall to bring about the integration between the two. And, um, and of course now China, which has this phenomenal development, is mainly an East Coast development, and they are transferring huge, huge uh, sums of money inland to provide the infrastructure. In fact, I experienced one of them recently when I visited the University of Wuhan, and it was amazing. It was like ultra-modern road networks, railway stations, airports, and not enough people to use them. And they're saying, oh, don't worry, you know, we'll bring enough people soon enough to, to, to use all these uh, facilities here. But they first build the facilities and then bring the people to do it. Now, why don't, why don't we do that in Europe? Well, the reason is that Americans, Germans, with East, West, Chinese, they feel part of the, set of, of, of the same, of a single unit, of the same country. But in Europe, we don't. When 
rich nations like Germany are asked to provide money for the poorer nations in Europe, they look at it as wasted money that is given for some need or because of some earlier commitment, but wasted nonetheless, and they have an, an example to show you. If you, don't, if you don't read German, that means, well, I mean, you know, here's my Google Translation for me. I should say, if you don't have access to Google Translation, then what that says is Greece needs more money. And, um, and, and then that was painted blue and white, the, the gutter below. Um, but um, since then, I understand the Financial Times Deutschland uh, went out of business. <laughs> I guess if they are reporters, show the same, show the same um, sign of subtleness as, uh, and sophistication as their cartoon writers. I'm not surprised they went out of business. <laughs> Good luck to them. Um, now, what about current policy in, in Europe? Well, currently money is transferred in Europe through the structural budget and some through the rescue packages that we have, like the European Stability Mechanism. The structural budget is obviously not enough because infrastructure in Europe is deteriorating, it's in a terrible state. We need better transportation, now telecoms, our gas natural resource, our energy network is terrible compared with the United States. So we obviously need more, but some is, is taking place. Then the rescue packages will come with many conditions attached. They're usually the ones that the Troika is imposing. And they're extremely unpopular, of course, in the, um, in the countries of the, um, that, um, that have to take the money. Um, these packages are agreed, as we're told, but of course they're mainly dictated by those who provide the money, and, and fair enough. Austerity is the most infamous of these conditions. I'm going to talk about this later on. And they're extremely unpopular in the countries that uh, get them to the extent that they don't consider that what they're getting is uh, help from partners is more like it's our last resort, that if we don't get money from here, we cannot borrow from anywhere else. And, um, and what, now, what's the response of the countries that provide the funds for that, or of, of, the, of, of, the, um, of Brussels, the central secretariat and all that, is to pretend that the problem is not there. And I use an example, a couple of quotations. This is from the Financial Times when um, Wolfgang Schäuble, the German finance minister, uh, wrote. And it says the world should rejoice at the positive economic signals that Eurozone is sending almost continu continuously these days. It has taken a critical observers aback. Despite what the critics of the European crisis management would have us believe, we live in the real world, not in a parallel universe where well-established economic principles no longer apply. Well, again, those of you with a long memory will remember the there is no alternative statement to a, a, such policies. But this kind of triumphant uh, statement that, that the world is rejoicing by watching the Eurozone, well, I have to say I've traveled a lot in the world recently. I haven't seen any rejoicing at what Europe is doing, but <laughs> there, there you go. Maybe I met the wrong people. <laughs> and then the president of the European Council at a meeting that I was fortunate enough to be present, in fact, um, expressed a view which, if you look at the European Commission website, you see it more and more uh, coming out of officials, that um, national and European interests coincide more and more. We need an ever closer Eurozone. The integration via the Euro is so profound that Europe has become part of daily life. Indeed, to some extent, solidarity is a new idea in the Union. 
which I, which, which when I heard it, I kept, I kept pinching myself, you know, going like this. <laughs> well, you may, you may not know that Hermann van Rompuy is a poet as well. He's a published poet. He, pub he publishes haikus, <laughs> these short Japanese poems. So I, I explain this um, only to poetic license, which may be transferred to his other writings, not only to his collection of haikus. <laughs> now, here are some views from uh, Schäuble's Parallel Universe. I think one of the best ones I read was by Martin Wolf in the Financial Times, where he said, if depressions in mass unemployment are a success, then adjustment in the Eurozone is indeed a triumph. We should rejoice. Mr. Schäuble accuses his critics of living in a parallel universe. I'm happy to do so rather than live in his. <laughs> well done, Martin. <laughs> and Joseph, uh, Joe Stiglitz in uh, Project Syndicate more recently, he, he said what I've been saying so far, that the euro was supposed to bring growth, prosperity, and their sense of unity to Europe instead brought stagnation, instability, and divisiveness, which is a direct response to Van Rompuy's comments about uh, solidarity and so on. And you can see it here. I mean, like, I mean they're talking about profound integration. You know, Liren talked about the same and all that. I mean, I mean just see what happened. I, I took 1999, but you have taken it any time. In 1999, and of course, now this compares per capita GDP, so it's essentially a standard of living uh, at constant prices and um, purchasing power parity just because this is what the Eurostat website gave. I don't know if it's... Uh, and, but that's relative to the European Union average um, of a fixed number of countries. You know, the composition of countries doesn't change to um, create any side effects. And what we see is that when the euro was first introduced, Germany was 22% above the average. Now it's 25% above the average. So it's grown... The gap has grown relative to the average uh, since the introduction. Italy was 11% above, now it's 5% below. Spain was right in the middle, is now 5% below. Portugal, Greece were below and they've come further below. So there is a gap, so you can see a gap that's open since the, we had the euro between uh, Germany and I'm sure if I put Netherlands and Finland, they would be on the, uh, on the, on the German side. And then the um, Club Med, as I call them, the, as they call them, the Mediterranean countries, um, coming down. I mean, it's quite amazing that um, Italy is below the uh, European Union average now, considering the countries included in the European Union. It's, 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 it's really the sad story of Europe, the Italian performance. In fact, um, well, not so long ago, in late 80s, beginning of 90s, Italy even overtook Britain. It was the great sorpasso, as they were calling it, with triumphalism and all that. And now it's something like 20% below Britain. And then Spain's ambitions were to catch up with Italy by joining the European Union. Of course, what they hadn't realized is that the way to catch up with Italy is stand still and Italy will come and find you. <laughs> Which is what, in fact, not only that, they've been, they've been regressing and Italy managed, Italy managed to catch up with them. <laughs> so maybe I should tell Mr. Samaras to set it as the Greek ambition to catch up with Italy. It would be the easiest thing <laughs> to do in the Eurozone. <laughs> Just wait and he will come and find you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's, that's the table of um, profound integration. <laughs> anyway, so what went wrong? Well, I'm afraid it's not only politicians that got it wrong with the euro, but economists got it wrong as well. And um, 
and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the economies. Now, the founding fathers, meaning the politicians, of course, assumed that each country's politicians in the future would behave in the interests of the Union. You know, solidarity was the word we're using. You know, you are Europeans and we have to push forward. But in fact, what politicians in the uh, Eurozone, European Union, Eurozone did, they tried to use the new institutional structure to their own advantage. <coughs> I mean, you know, the, the ones of the South did it even more than the ones in the North. But that's the problem with the uh, institutional structure, of course. You know, we, so we got large budget deficits in borrowing on the strength of a common currency, build-up of debt, overextended banks, especially in the construction sector. There was full confidence in those countries because they, had the, they thought they had the protection of the euro. Well, now we've gone to the other extreme. There is no trust at all in, in political Europe. One country just doesn't trust another, that they do the right thing. And one lesson that we should draw from this, and in fact it's influencing what I'm going to say later on about banking union, is that we need to have stricter central control to restore the confidence that we lost uh, in Europe. Now, economists got it wrong because, and that's part of the problem, is that modern, modern economics is still struggling to find a reason for price stickiness that hurts the real economy, but that's exactly what we're seeing now. In the 1990s, economists, you know, they, <laughs> were too optimistic about an, <laughs> about an economist's ability to adjust. <laughs> in fact, I can see one of the people that we had endless discussions in the 1990s, Charlie being here about um, the euro, and, and both he and I agreed that although, you know, exchange rates, flexible exchange rates are better than fixed, but some other nominal adjustment will soon enough take place to offset anything that fixed exchange rates will do. I mean, that's, that was the consensus. Um, so we didn't think that freezing exchange rates between North and South would hurt very much, and we thought, you know, if there are political gains, why not do it? You know, that was the basis of, of our support for, for, for the euro. Now, of course, this has proved wrong, because the nominal adjustment that everyone was looking for was wage reductions. You know, if you reduce wages, that takes the place of... Uh, of nominal exchange rate depreciation, the real exchange rate still depreciates and you can sell, you can restore your competitiveness that way. But in fact, it's completely wrong. Greece is the only country that's done it to the full. Wage, wages came down in Greece by 25% since 2005, seven, sorry, seven. Italy to some extent, but not as much as Greece. Now, what do we see in Greece? Well, first of all, we see all the political and social problems. There is a breakdown of social order. The extreme, tight, the extreme right has risen, and the extreme left, you know, politics has been polarized completely. There is daily propaganda against uh, Germany and Northern Europe, which is not good for the future of, of Europe. There are riots in the streets of Athens. You know, I mean, like, I mean, like Greek, Greeks forget all that and start enjoying life again in the summer when they can go to the islands. But the weather changes, the islands are no longer attractive, they come back to Athens and they start. You know, it's not a way to lead your life. So, but, but this is not the only problem. Wage reductions have also hurt for, for purely economic reasons. And these are, these are the standard Keynesian reasons. You know, deflation has not got any country out of recession. You reduce wages, you reduce pensions, you, you accompany that with uh, reductions in government spending to reduce the, the deficit, you raise taxes, you have banks that cannot lend. So what do you expect to see? I mean, you expect to see aggregate demand collapse completely. 
And therefore, the, real, the, the value of the debt to the GDP to GDP ratio goes up. And then you get the Troika coming in saying, you failed to meet your target because your debts are too high, so you need more austerity. And that gets you into a vicious circle that leads to more debt and unemployment. And that's exactly where we are. You know, that's what the wage reductions have done. Now, is there an alternative? Well, the, well there are alternatives, but there is even one next door, as it were, you know, across, across the lake, as they used to call it. And, and, and I put it down um, to the fact that, um, well, no, I mean, there are many reasons, but the, the fact that the, the current chairman of the Fed has uh, become famous in economics for studying the Great Depression and understanding what went wrong. And therefore, he wouldn't do the mistake that we're doing in, in Europe. He has had a big expansion of, uh, you know, through the QE programs and, and um, avoiding fiscal contraction, although they need it much more than uh, we need it here. And they've done better than us. In, in other words, it's, as so many people, especially American economists like Stiglitz and Krugman have said many times, if we're going to break this vicious circle, of rising unemployment and uh, build-up of debt, then what we need is to inflate the economy, not deflate it. And therefore, the ECB needs to create more inflation that will depreciate the euro, reduce the real, the real burden of the debt, or if it doesn't like the inflation, which is very likely, issue euro bonds that will spread the debt burden across Europe. And then you might say, well, how, you know, there's so much debt in Europe, how can we spread it to the ones that don't have it? In fact, we don't have so much debt in Europe. If they issued euro bonds and, and converted all European sovereign debt to a, a common euro bond, then the eurozone would still have a lower debt to GDP ratio than the United States. And the current um, debt situation in the United States is not holding them back from growing. They're growing, in fact, much faster than um, Europe is forecast to grow. Uh, in the <clears throat> next few years. Now, something more about what kind of policy and where we stand. You know, wh what's the ECB doing? I should say that I do support, actually, what the European Central Bank has been saying recently about banking union and the rest. That, I mean, I'm not critical of, of what they're saying. What, what this, uh, this slide and the next are meant to point out is that their job is so hopeless, they, they can never hope to do a, a proper job for everyone. And the reason is that if you apply a Taylor rule, which I mentioned is you know, a way of evaluating monetary policy, then you'll find that what the Eurozone is doing now is the policy that the Taylor rule will recommend for a country like Germany, but it's a, it's a very, very poor policy if you use the, uh, the, the um, economic uh, conditions of the European South. Um, but what's worse is that if you look at the latest data, it's impossible to get a Taylor rule that would be good for both. This, I mean, what I say in the two slides, in the two bullet points, is something that has been done by someone, but I just couldn't remember his name to mention it. But there, but there is research that shows that a Taylor rule for the ECB would give you, if you put the German fundamentals in, it would give you the right policy, but not if you put the um, South Europe fundamentals. And, and, and here is the problem. You know, inflation in Germany is 1.3, which is one of the drivers of the Taylor rule. In, in the Club Med, inflation is minus 0.36. There is deflation. Uh, so there's no way you can get a policy that will satisfy both those. And then unemployment in Germany is 5%. The average of the, of the Club Med is 20.5. The Club Med, by the way, has Portugal as an honorary member. 
I do know that Portugal doesn't <laughs> touch the Mediterranean Sea. But, um, but they are allowed to enter their Mediterranean. They have the Mediterranean spirit. <laughs> um, okay, so now lessons from the monetary union. Um, what we've learned now about exchange rates with this tying in, well, we've learned that tying in the smaller and productive, low productivity growth economies of the European South with a large high productivity and high growth economy like Germany simply doesn't work. I mean, we thought it would work through other adjustments, but it doesn't. The only thing that could make it work is huge transfers of money from one to the other, which are unacceptable. Without those transfers, then real exchanges obviously need to adjust. The real exchange rate needs to appreciate in Germany, it needs to depreciate in the South. How can you do it? Well, you can do it through inflation in the high growth countries. So you could inflate in Germany, or you could deflate in the low growth countries. That's what theory will say if you look at an economics textbook. I hope I didn't get that wrong, by the way. I haven't taught economics for, <laughs> from a simple textbook for a while, but, but I think that's the right answer. Now, what about inflation in Germany? Well, Germany will never allow inflation to take place. And what about deflation in the South? We know that Keynesian depression in demand will follow, and therefore neither of these policies, corrective mechanisms, can take place. So it's a hopeless situation with, uh, with exchange rates. What about labor markets? Well, labor markets, and I will restrain myself on this because we could be here talking about until, until tomorrow. <laughs> now, monetary union does need a flexible labor market. There's no, need about, there's no doubt about that. And the reasons that UK and Sweden, when I was working on their commissions, they decided not to join in 99 were to a very large extent because they believed that they had more flexible labor markets than the rest of Europe and they didn't want to tie themselves in with those um, uh, inflexible labor markets. At least that was what the economists said. And, and it was a good enough reason. Germany, of course, was also inflexible at the time. <clears throat> now, many, many countries in the South still lack flexibility. Spain and Greece, had, and, and Italy, in fact, are the best examples. That their labor markets still need more reform. There's no doubt again about that. Uh, the recent structural reforms are in the right direction but they still haven't had any impact. I think it's a question of time and it's a question of creating the right conditions for them to have an impact. I mean, important reforms have taken place, um, especially in Spain, actually, of these three. And there's an example. We have the German reforms of 2002-2005, which took place in, a favorable, in favorable conditions, but, they, but it still took four years for them to have an impact on the economy. So you do need to give time for reforms to have an impact on the economy. Now, austerity, on the other hand, that is imposed for debt reduction reasons, has an immediate impact on the economy. And the large negative effects that it has will under, undermine the um, reform programs. They will make it more difficult for countries to reach agreement on longer-term objectives. So, the, so what's wrong here is, is not so much the policies that are being recommended, but it's more the timing of the austerity and reform that, that we got completely wrong. And, and not only that, in fact, in the Eurozone, more attention is paid to austerity and the fiscal balance, you know, when the Troikas visit these countries, than progress with structural reforms. They do pay attention to progress with structural reforms, but what drives their next policy and whether they release the money or not is what's been done 
on the fiscal balance, which again is the wrong emphasis, I believe. Now, what's the response of the economy to all that? Well, again, it's a standard Keynesian response. We, we saw it also in Thatcher's Britain when it was done in poor economic conditions without consensus. It's the Keynesian response where, the, um, where unemployment goes up, stays there for many years, and what's the response from politicians? Again, the way they respond is driven more by their political beliefs than, uh, than by economics. And I have this example here that um, a few months ago, Gerhard Schroeder, Schroeder who was um, the um, chancellor in Germany, who uh, brought about the reforms of 2002-2005 and lost the election as his reward from that. And he wrote in the Wall Street Journal that um, the German experience shows that um, reforms have to be given time to have an effect, just like we had in Germany, he said. And he said for the next four years, the European Union should go easy on austerity by financing large investment projects to restore the competitiveness of the European economy and um, postpone austerity. He now works for a think tank, I think the Brugger Institution, that's how that's why he was writing, and was, Jacques Delors was writing uh, with him on the same thing. And on the other hand, we have Wolfgang, Wolfgang uh, Schobler, who um, succeeded, uh, who works for the government that succeeded, uh, Schroeder. And in the FT recently he made the Thatcher, right? there is no alternative and everything is working out nicely. They were looking at the same data, they had similar jobs, same country as, as an example, one said, don't be too tough on them, give them uh, more time and, and spend more money. And, and he, he specifically said Germany should give more money to fund infrastructure projects. The other one is saying the world is rejoicing because everything is working out so finely. Okay, and finally I come to um, the institutional uh, changes that I believe should be made. I'm aware of the time, although I do have another 10 minutes, I guess. Um, and. Um, what we're seeing now and what needs to be done. Um, so what we've learned, one of the things we've learned is that the split between fiscal and monetary policies is untenable. We have to have a policy that, um, that uh, regulates both because national governments at present need to recapitalize their banks and ensure their deposits, and this involves fiscal spending which leads to sovereign debt. And therefore poor bank supervision, which is what we had so far, can lead to a deteriorating fiscal balance. Now you can see where that's getting at, that we need to do something about bank supervision, and of course it's the, it's the topic that is being discussed now on a daily basis. In fact, I think as we speak, there are intense meetings taking place in, in Brussels about it, trying to reach a compromise. Now, the, um, now I do believe that banking union is needed urgently, and that goes beyond the current proposals. The, um, when I wrote this, in fact, I wrote, I wrote this maybe four or five days ago. Since then, they have gone beyond the current proposals under pressure from uh, the, the European Central Bank. And, and that's what I mean, at least on banking union. The, if, they, if we did exactly what the European Central Bank is saying it needs to be done, I, I think we'll have covered most of the way, if, if not all. There, it would be satisfactory, but, but Germany is, is taking a, a different position, is against this ECB standing. What they're now trying to do is to reach some kind of compromise. Uh, 
with each one giving up uh, some of their uh, demands. Now, the, so the current proposals even then looked um, looked good, but they had been delayed a, a lot. I mean, banking union was supposed to happen in 2013. Now it's expected in 2015, and and today I was reading the FT maybe 2016 that uh, we expect to have the common supervisor with the fund. No, the fund, no, the fund that he needs will, or she needs will take uh, uh, another 10 years to build up. I, I think what we need is more powers for the ECB, or if they don't like it, to give it to the ECB, at least an independent regulatory, regulatory authority. Um, I think we need a strong central regulator who will supervise and have powers to um, close down banks, to recapitalize them if they feel like it, and to ensure their deposits, most of all. Currently, I don't mention this here, but for, for the small depositor, the thing that matters most is, is, is who is uh, insuring their deposits? Who is going to make sure that they get their money, bank, their money back if their bank fails and if they have less than 100,000 deposited? And, and currently, there is no policy in the European Union for that. In the case of, uh, of Cyprus, which is the one that uh, they went <coughs> to the um, extremes, the, the, the Eurogroup actually agreed to tax deposits below 100,000 by 6% to recapitalize the bank, and the ones above 100,000 by 10%. And the, um, this, the, the reason the measure wasn't implemented was that the Cyprus parliament rejected it for completely wrong reasons, but at least they reached the right decision. <laughs> I mean, they rejected it because they like saying no, the Cypriots, <laughs> and get their flags and start running in the streets. And then they went back to the Eurogroup, and the Eurogroup said, uh, all right, you know, there should be a tax on, only on, on deposits over 100,000 to recapitalize the bank, and then we ended up with 47% on those instead of 10%. Now, the, um, in fact, when I was in, in Brussels recently on that, Van Rompuy meeting. I did, I, I did ask everyone present, actually, if they knew who was uh, uh, safeguarding their deposits, if they had in the bank less than 100,000, and, and they actually didn't know. And we have many examples, like, like in this country, where Northern Rock, Northern Rock and, and RBS were going bust. It was the British government that came in and essentially guaranteed the value of the deposits by nationalizing them. But the British government had enough money to do it. I mean, European countries don't have money to do it. In the case of Greece, the Troika insured their deposits. The Troika is just pumping money in, in, into Greek banks so, so as not to tax the, the deposits. In the case of Cyprus, it was big depositors who were insuring small depositors. In the case of Iceland, foreign depositors were insuring domestic depositors. And I mean, we need to have something, some policy that is consistent across the European Union. And I think the only policy is that the European Central Bank should insure those deposits and enough money should be made available to it to be able to pay when the need arises, when they realize that the need arises. Something similar is happening in the United States, I believe. And, and because of that, I think all banks should be included and it should come under the European regulator, not only the systemic banks, which is something else that Germany is insisting on, um, because very often problems start with small banks. And again, we saw it in, uh, in, in Cyprus, where the bank that failed first and started it all was not a systemic bank. There are, there are two systemic banks, I believe, now, the current <coughs> classifications, but the one that failed wouldn't have been. 
And the same happened in um, Belgium when Taxia was not a systemic bank and, and it failed. Uh, and then if you exclude some banks, then banks will start playing tricks. They will be setting up different subsidiaries with different names and different authorities and so on. I mean, you know that bankers are extremely clever. When you give them a tiny bit of peace, they manage to squeeze a giant through it. <laughs> and um, you can see the jealousy towards bankers coming up all the time. <laughs> and um, now, the, um, now what the proposal is that they are discussing now is that there should be enough powers left to national authorities to supervise and, uh, and decide, especially on, um, on uh, closures of banks. And that's what Germany is, is insisting on. But, but I, think, I think that will not work. I mean, that's what we had up to now. And it didn't work. And there's just no confidence across Europe that other countries will do the right job. I mean, we always think our country will do the right job, of course, but we never trust the others that will do the right job. So we need someone based in Frankfurt or whenever, who will tell everyone what the right thing is to do, and then we just uh, get on with other things in life, not <laughs> worrying about banks. Now, what's happening now on the ground in Europe? Well, in fact, Europe, because of that lack of confidence that we have, European banks have never been so home-biased as they are now. They are concentrated only on, on the debt of their own sovereign. They lend domestically. They are not holding each other's uh, assets. And therefore, there's no such thing as risk sharing across the Eurozone. In other words, it's not functioning as a single monetary uh, union. It's just functioning as a, as a collection of disparate little banks here and there. And that's because they don't have confidence in each other's uh, regulators. And, <clears throat> and I have to say, it's what the ECB is trying to change with this financing of sovereign debt that they have, which is the topic that they're discussing today, in fact, from what I was reading. How can we, we do need to restore trust, maybe it's a little bit re re repetitive, and um, therefore we should give up, the, we should not give too many powers to the decentralized supervisory authority, because it's failed, we should create the fund as soon as possible. I mean, the fund is supposed to have 55 billion euros, and, um, and again, because Germany is putting pressure that uh, no government should contribute into that fund, they think that it should all be accumulated from a tax on banks. They say you should give them 10 years to do it. So the proposal is, if, if it starts in 2014, 15, it would be 2025 before we have the fund that can insure the deposits, which is far too long. Then there was a counter proposal from the European Central Bank, I think it was from them that came, that at least do this, but at least let them borrow from the 500 billion fund of the European Stability Mechanism, provide the fund now so it can insure deposits now. But they refused to accept it. They said, no, you should leave that alone and, and store it, which again, you know, I mean, who knows what will happen within the 10 years? What if we have another crisis then? Now, what about fiscal policy? Now, we also need some kind of control of individual country fiscal finances, otherwise there would be political objections again to what we're seeing now, um, because large fiscal transfers are just not palatable to European voters the way they are to Americans, for example. And we need some control over national budgets in order to achieve that. Now, how can we do that? Well, currently there is some kind of fiscal supervision by the European Commission. But I think it would be more credible if it was done by an independent body as well. You know, something like a fiscal policy council based in Brussels 
that can work with the um, national fiscal policy councils that exist in most countries now. The, again, when I was in, in Brussels and I said that the European Commission, of course, objected strongly, I said, why, what's wrong with the supervision that we are doing? Well, you know, you might be doing a good job, but you need to be seen to be doing a good job as well. You know, you don't ask the person who is uh, choosing policy to provide the supervision as well. You know, individual countries have done it. We've done it in this country by introducing the Office of Budget Responsibility. And, and I think it's urgently needed in Brussels. But there are objections. It, it's, not, it's not likely to be formed in the near future. So this coming to the end. So current policies, again, as I mentioned, are not conducive to growth. We've seen Keynesianism coming back. So it's, um, I was born a Keynesian, and I'm going to die a Keynesian. <laughs> Never mind about what happened in between. <laughs> but at least it won me an Nobel Prize. <laughs> And <laughs> we, we do need coordinated investment policies across Europe. And as a final remark, I think the single currency currently is holding back job creation and, and growth. We need to do something rapidly to bring Europe back to preeminence. Um, coordinated action, either dismantle it or rescue it. I think it should be rescued, but you know who knows? And we should do that for the sake of lost generations of youths who are now without the prospect of a job in countries like Greece, Spain, and elsewhere in Europe. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Chris. Uh, we have a fairly unusual evening tonight, so we're not having time this evening for question and answers from the floor in the usual way. Some of you, you will know who you are, are welcome to come upstairs to the fifth floor shortly, and you'll be able to talk to Chris there. Uh, it just falls to me to say one of the things that I think we'd like to do more of at LSE is to have inaugural lectures by the people that come to the school or people that get new positions within the school. But it's been a great privilege tonight uh, to hear from a Nobel Prize winner, an avowed Keynesian, about very important issues in the area that we all live. Um, just before I ask you to give a final round of applause for Chris, can I just also ask you to sort of sit in your seats, particularly if you're downstairs, and let Chris get out to the lift first so that he can be upstairs on the fifth floor to meet those of you that are going up there. So many thanks again, Chris, for seeing you.